Good morning, y'all. How we doing? Good morning. As uh, Jeff said earlier, he said he wasn't preaching today, so you guys are probably like, who is? Well, I am. I'm Brad. If you don't know me, I am our creative arts pastor here at Northside, but um, had done youth ministry here on staff for like 12 or 13 years and been doing it total for like a total of 24. So crazy, crazy history, crazy, crazy past. And today, we are going to actually continue in our series called Potholes. Now, this has been a series that, as I have really talked to people, has really resonated with people. We've talked about uh, bitterness, we've talked about despair, we've talked about pride, and Jeff has done that over these last three weeks. And these are the things in our lives that tend to trip us up as we're journeying down that narrow road toward Christ. You know, we got the wide road and we got the narrow road. And for some reason, that narrow road feels like, man, there's just a bunch of potholes and hills and challenges every step of the way. And so today, I'm going to be talking to you guys about discouragement, okay, Uh, discouragement. And so we're going to jump right into scripture. So if you guys have your Bibles or have your phones, turn to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be starting right in the first chapter, first verse of 1 Samuel. Now, I feel like this is this is a funny thing, but I have like never taught out of the story we're going to teach out of today. And I feel like Jeff, now now I know why Jeff gave me this message. He was like, "Man, Moses, we got that covered. Jonah, these are all like easy ones." And so I'm going to throw this one at Brad that's talking about uh Ramatham, okay? And and <laughs> And, and these people that I'm like, I open this up and I'm like, who are these people? Okay. So I just want to start right off the first, right off the bat here. First Samuel chapter one, verse one and two says this. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zup, and Eph- I don't know why I'm struggling with this last thing. An Epaphrodite. He had two wives. Thank you. Uh, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. All right? So right off the bat, we're in this crazy, crazy story that has just, man, so much going in it. We're two verses in, and there's already some drama that we can sense coming down the pike here, okay? What a way to start a story. We have this man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, one whose name is Hannah and the other Penaniah, and it is noted that Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so today, as we talk about discouragement, we're going to be focusing on Hannah, as our lead character, as we talk about her road and her journey and her life that we find her in. And we instantly see where her discouragement is going to be, right? Hannah has two issues that we see right off the bat here. Number one is she has to share a husband, okay? She has to share a husband. So not only is she married to Elkanah, but she's also married to Elkanah, who's also married to Penaniah, okay? And, like, this is a weird thing in the Old Testament that we see time and time and again. We see all these people in the Old Testament that have multiple wives. We think of Solomon, and he had hundreds 
of wives, right? We see all these relationships in the Old Testament, and so a lot of us can probably draw the conclusion, oh, God must, God must be okay with polygamy, right? That he must be think, oh, yeah, go ahead, get yours, Elkanah, right? They just go ahead and do what you need to do. But even in the Old Testament, it was still considered sinful. But for some reason, people in the Old Testament loved to be married to multiple people. Now, the, the cool thing about what we see about this in the Old Testament is the Bible never, ever, ever spins it in a positive way. There is never a single instance in Scripture where someone is married to multiple people, that things go right. (laughs) There's always tragedy. There's always drama. There's always things that are pulling these people away from what God would have for them. And thus, there is the lesson in this. But Hannah's first issue is that she must share a husband. Her second issue is this. She cannot have children. Okay? Now, why this was huge is... What we understand in the history is that Elkanah married Hannah first, okay? And so he married Hannah, and somewhere along the way, they discovered that they probably weren't able to have children, and thus why he married Penaniah, okay? Kind of a raw deal there, more drama adding into this situation. And the big deal for Hannah is that not being able to have children in this Old Testament context would have been the biggest deal for her or for any woman at that time. You see, in the Old Testament days, especially in that Israelite Jewish culture, your worth, if you were a woman, unfortunately came from having children. Okay, Um, So glad that has changed over time. But what we see here in the Old Testament is that her worth would have been determined by the ability to have children. And thus, she cannot have any. So her husband went out and married someone else so he could have children. Mm, Right? So we just see Hannah in this position where, man, just the issues that she have are stacked against her. And now you understand where we're talking about discouragement this morning, right? There's just the everything is stacked against her. And she's got these huge things. So let's continue. Verse 3 through 8 is what we're going to read next. It said, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah's wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Oof. (laughs) Man, there's a lot here. And we see that Hannah again and again is in this tough situation that is just dragging her down in her worth, in her value, and just 
packed with discouragement. So I want to talk about three things next here, and we're calling these Hannah's Dilemma. And so whenever I teach, like in high school or when I teach in college, I say there's things called Brad-isms. There are things that, like, I bring to the table that um, I just word, think weird, word things weirdly. So we're going to go on a little journey here for these little dilemma things of, of what Hannah's going through. Number one, the pity party handouts. Verse 4. So it says they would go year after year up to this place to sacrifice. And year after year, Elkanah would provide portions for Pananiah and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, right? Though the Lord had closed her womb. You guys ever get pity party handouts? Like when people feel bad for you and they don't know what to do, so they just give you more of something? How does that, I know that doesn't sit well with me. Like whenever I'm going through something, and just because I'm going through something, Brad, we're going to give you a little extra time on this, or Brad, we're going to give you a little bit extra over here. Now, we're not going to really try to address the situation or, or help it. We're just going to give you a double portion. Here's that extra little spoonful of mac and cheese, Brad, to just like, help you get you on your way, to grease the wheel toward contentment and grease the wheel toward happiness. And I'm sure this didn't sit well with Hannah because we see in here that the reason why she got the double portion is because her womb's closed. How's that for a great reason? Because of this thing in your life that is now defining you, we're going to give you some extra food. I don't... I don't know how I like how that sits. I don't know if I like how that would sit with Hannah, but that's number one. The handouts that she received are part of her dilemma. Number two, the heated rivalry. Can you imagine being married to someone who's married to someone else? I, I'm not even married, and so like even that is like daunting for me. But like I can't imagine having to compete with someone else for their love and. We read here what Penaniah does. It says that her rival, I love how it describes her, Penaniah, as her rival. Like, we got, like, Ohio State and Michigan, like, chucking along, going up to this hill to sacrifice, right? And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Again, here is her issue, and here is this stuff, again and again and again, thrown in her face. Provoking her, teasing her, mocking her as they go toward to worship God. I'm sure she was like, hey, you know why you're getting that extra portion, right? Because you can't have kids. Can you, like, she provoked her grievously. Man, Penaniah, come on, girl. Number three, the aren't I enough for you. Alkana, come on, man. Like, I'm not married, and I know that's the wrong tactic to take, right? Listen to what he says, and listen to it in that way. And Elkanah, her husband, verse 8, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you think she's weeping, Elkanah? Why do you think? Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not enough for you? Like, okay, Elkanah, calm down, bud. Like, we need to bring our ego down a little bit here. He's saying, I was your first love. I married you first. Isn't this thing we have good enough? Even though your womb is closed? And 
And Hannah's probably like, no, it's not. Because I'm living in this thing day after day after day where this stuff keeps heaping on top of itself again and again and again, reminding me that my biggest identifier is who I am is what is wrong with me over who I actually am. You want to know why I'm sad? Because I can't have your children. And this girl over here is popping them out, right? You want to know why I'm sad? It's because you have a pity party for me and you keep throwing food at me. Hannah's in a bad, a bad, bad way. So this yearly trip to worship and sacrifice would unfortunately for Hannah become an emotional death march. Because it says that this same thing, the same process would happen year after year after year, where they would go before God and they would lay all this stuff at his feet and they would pray to him and they would sacrifice him, sacrifice to him for things to change, for life to change. And year after year, this had not been working. Is anyone familiar with that? Is anyone sat in something for so long and you just take it on the chin again and again and again and again? And what do we see Hannah's response is? Is that she's not eating. She's weeping. She's visibly shaken every time they go to sacrifice and worship God. That would be similar to every week, one of us walking in here to worship and sitting off to the side and just not connecting with anyone and just crying from the pit of everything they are and us just ignoring them. That is the life that Hannah lived. And instead of helping it, we just try to give her more. We try to give him more. We try to, we try to do all the things that, that Hannah has unfortunately experienced that just cause this dilemma and this problem to go on and on and on. So the definition, definition of discouragement, I think, is a good place to drop this. It's wishing things, that, things were different, but not having the power to do anything about them. Okay, Discouragement is wishing things were different, but not having the power to do anything about them. And so for years upon years upon years, Hannah would walk into the same situation, and the situation would play out, and she would go home further discouraged. Just the same scenario, time after time after time. Well, good news. <laughs> I don't know if it's good news, but we can all relate to Hannah, because every single one of us has been where she's been, right? In one way or another, there's something in our life that we wish was different, and we feel like we don't have the power to do anything about it. Things like our family situation, our jobs, our marriage, children, friend groups, sickness, talent, giftedness, and on and on and on and on. We find ourselves in these situations where we feel like the whole world is crashing down on us and we wish that they were different and we, we find and we feel there's nothing we can do about it. 
If you know me, I love Walt Disney, right? If you know me, you know I love Walt Disney. And I'm not talking about necessarily the company, but the, the man Walt Disney, if you've ever read anything on him, is so, so cool, all right? He's like one of the, the greatest people of like the last 100 years, most of the innovative, change the way the world works. We know a cartoon mouse and that three circles form his head because of a man who created that, okay? I think we can all agree that he's one of the most successful and most driven humans of all time. Can we agree on that? Is that, a, is that like a, yeah, you might not like Walt, but whatever. Did you know that he was denied over 300 times in his career? The name that is on everything now was denied over 300 times in his career. He was told no. He said, nope, that's not going to work. That Your thoughts for that aren't going to happen. Nope. Number one, his first character, Oswald, was stolen from him. And so guess what he did? He created Mickey Mouse, <laughs> right? So imagine, imagine if, like, Mickey Mouse was Oswald the Rucky, Lucky Rabbit today. Like, this doesn't have the same ring to it, right? Like a, a, a Lucky Rabbit versus Mickey Mouse. But he was under contract with a thing called Uni- with a company, Universal, and they took it from him, and so he had to leave, and he had to come up with something new. And he came up with Mickey Mouse. Pretty good win. Snow White was the first feature-length animated film of, all t- of like, ever, okay? Like, now we know there's been 60 Walt Disney animated feature films, 60, since Snow White. And, like, we know other companies that do this and do this again. He was told it was going to be a failure. It was going to be the biggest flop in history. He went broke making that movie. It sold over 109 million tickets. If you adjust prices for inflation, it is still the top 10 most grossing movie of all time. A cartoon about a girl that lives with seven dwarves. Like, think about that. That's insane. Disneyland. Disneyland was predicted to be the thing that would undo him, right? Disneyland in California. It was going to undo him. There are now six Disney resorts consisting of 12 parks worldwide, and I think last year they made like a $3 billion profit, okay? So Walt Disney, who has nothing to do with faith at all, I don't know where he sits in his faith with God, but I don't know anything about it, was able to overcome discouragement 300 times and push through and make something of himself. That's just a worldly example but I want to I give you another little definition here for discouragement. Discouragement is disappointment plus time. Okay, discouragement is disappointment plus time. So we experience things that are disappointing, and as time goes on, we experience more and more and more things till we move to a place where we sit in discouragement, that we feel like nothing we do will change anything, that nothing we do will matter, and that that habit won't break. And that's where we find ourselves, that is where Walt Disney found himself, and more importantly, that's where Hannah finds herself. Year after year after year, these disappointments happen, and they build up and build up and build up and build up, and we sit and we live in this place of discouragement. But this time, this one time we have recorded in Scripture, she doesn't stay there. So we're going to pick up in verse 9. It says this. 
After they had eaten and drank in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to you a servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor Razor shall touch his head. Now, the whole razor touching his head thing is for those who would be to be set apart to serve God and serve God alone. So she's saying, God, if you give me a son, what I'm asking for today, I'm going to give him to you. If you give him to me, I give him right back. Right? And so in this little section here, we see what Hannah decides to be her solutions. Okay? Three things that Hannah decides are going to be her solutions. Number one is she gets up. And I know, speaking out of personal experience, the getting up thing is probably the hardest step. It's the, the person sitting in the corner of this building, if, back to our hypothetical situation, that is over there and weeping and grieving and not eating and not participating. There has to be a moment where you stand up and you say, I am going to pursue the thing that is going to change my situation. So when you get up, you have to change your situation. You have to remove yourself and get a new perspective. So I imagine Hannah, she would always go, she would always cry, she would always weep, she would always be down in the dumps sitting over here, and she was like, you know what? No more. I'm going to get up, I'm going to try something different. And so she gets up and she moves. There's this age-old thing in ministry that we always say that if we want to see God move, we need to get away from our norm. We need to do something different. We get, so, we get so tied into our schedules and the things we are doing that just staying that often won't rise us up out of it. So that's why we take kids to camp. That's why we do men's retreats. That's why we go places that are different so that we can rise up out of the norm and go experience God maybe in a new, fresh way where we can hear him. This is exactly what Hannah does right here. She gets up. Number two, she prays. <laughs> I think so many times we don't do that. And that is the most important thing we can do if we want God to step in. Um, this is something Zach has challenged me in and Joey, much like it, um, every morning before you guys come in here, about 45 minutes before, there are a team of people praying over these seats that God would move in this place and that he might be heard by you all sitting here through the worship, through communion, through the message, whatever it may be. So know that you're sitting in a place that has been prayed over, that, that these words... God's word is not mine, might hit your heart and change something. Because prayer changes stuff. Group of God's people calling out to God will change things. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've lived it. And so that is where we need to go to. Pray, just like Hannah did. She prays and she says, God, here's where I am. Come meet me in the middle. Do this. Make something happen. And the third thing she does is she hands it over to God. She just says, God, I want to have a son, and if you give me a son, he's yours. Right? Because so many times I feel like our prayers 
can be about what we want, right? It's about what we want. But we have to pray in a way that we're saying, God, this is what you want. We have to hand it to God. Because it's God's to begin with. It's never been ours. And so we need to hand it on back to him. And in that, God can move and do things. So let go of your control and let God work it out. Philippians 4.13, I always love to quote scriptures that we always get so wrong. That's what Philippians 4.13 is about. It's about giving control over to God and letting him do it in his will and in his way through us. So let's continue the story. 1 Samuel 1, 12 and 17. Now these three things that we talked about are going to be very, very countercultural. We do not see people get up, change their perspective, go to prayer, and then turn it over to God, right? We love to just hold it all into ourselves and stay in this place of discouragement and stress. Here's what Hannah does, verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest at this temple, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. So she was praying internally to herself. She was just over there going, she was just talking to herself. She wasn't like shouting it out. She was just talking to herself. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Okay, Eli, slow down. Uh, But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've never drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Have you ever prayed so hard that people think you're drunk? (laughs) It's so many times, it's so funny in Scripture that I don't know what it is. Maybe it's what we do too. If we saw someone walking down the street right now and they're like, wow, and they're just like gesturing and they're like talking to themselves, we'd probably go, like I'm drunk, right? If they walked by these windows right here, we'd probably think the same thing. Because we see that all over Scripture. When the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and all the disciples are speaking in tongues in the upper room, everyone's like, are they drunk? And so they go, no, they're not, because I can hear them and understand them in my own language. So that doesn't make any sense. But there's this natural reaction that when we go to God with this kind of unabandoned fervor and pursuit, that people go, what is he or she doing? Are they drunk? And then Hannah describes her perspective, and he's like, oh, she's not drunk. She's just really speaking out and calling on God. So go, be a favor, do it, girl, right? Get what you can get and let God move in you. One of my favorite Bible verses is Mark 12, 30. It says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. That's like, that's like a core verse for me. Because it, it talks and it teaches us the, the very way that we need to approach God. 
if we approach God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, we look different. We look different than what this world defines a Christian as looking like. It begins to look a little bit more what the Bible defines a Christian or someone chasing after God looks like. That sometimes they're going to look a little crazy because they have this huge faith in what God can do. A couple years ago, I was able to speak at um, a week of camp at Round Lake for our junior hires. And I was talking on soul as a part of this very phrase because that was our message series for the week. It was our identity. And this word soul in the Greek is actually called nephesh. And nephesh, how that is defined is 100%. Everything you have, all of you, your innermost being, from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes, it is everything in you. And so when this verse tells us that we are to worship God with all of our soul, like our heart is that relational thing, our love, our, our friendship, all those things, our mind is how we think, our strength is our physicality, but our soul is everything in us. What does it look like to give all of that to God? What does it look like to give 100%? I think it looks a little bit like Hannah here, just pouring herself out. In my journey through anxiety, I have found that control is one of my biggest causes for anxiousness. That I love to feel like I'm in control of something and grab onto it, and I'm the only one who's going to fix it. Only me. And I, and I cast this on other people, too. I have to come in, and I have to save the situation, and I have to say the right words and the right phrases to fix it. I do not like to give things up. I hold on to them very, very, very tightly. So when I read this story about Hannah, I understand her issues. I understand her dilemma. Because in my own ways, I do exactly the same thing. And time after time after time, I just hold on to stuff. And so I'm only giving 80% to God. I'm not giving my whole soul. I might be giving my heart, my mind, and my strength, but that nephesh is missing a few letters. It's a little bit off. And what I've learned is that that's not healthy. It's not healthy physically, but more importantly, it's not healthy spiritually. God asked for all of us. He asked for our 100%. And when I hold on to things, that is not 100%. And in this story, we see Hannah was not giving 100%. She wanted God to step in and change it. But she wasn't giving it. And it wasn't until she gave that 100% that we see God going to respond. And as, as we enter into communion, and we're in this place where I'm sure a lot of you guys are rolling through stuff in your head about the things that you hold on to, and where are you like Hannah, and where are you even like me? Where's the stuff that you just want to hang on to and control? I want you guys to hear this. 
every single thing that's in your mind, every single thing that you control, it was nailed on that cross with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And every single thing in this room that is in our heads right now, that very thing that's keeping you from being in communion with God, from giving it over to Him, it's already been bought. It's already been won. And all we need to do is step into that. Step into that, let go, and let God take control of it. We need to get up, we need to pray, and we need to give it to Him. So I don't know what is in your mind as we talk about this. But as we enter into communion, may we, may we give that over to God. Because He's the only one that's going to solve it. Holding on to it is going to do nothing. And so realize that the very things we take, those emblems, that juice and that bread, they represent the things that were broken to cover that and to pry your hand off of it so that God can take it and make it into something beautiful. So church, whenever you're ready, take communion and remember, remember what, he, what Christ did on that cross to pry our hands off this stuff and for him to conquer it once and for all. You guys can take communion when you're ready. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come before you today to, to give up the things that we hold on to, the things that have disappointed us in our lives, the, the things that have happened maybe a long time ago, that time has just made compound on itself again and again and again and again, and we find ourselves discouraged. We find ourselves in a place where we are without and so, God, I pray that we can pry our hands off of these things and give them over to you, the one who is able and the one who is worthy to take all of it, to take all of it and turn it for good. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ who came to live a life to show us what that looks like and to tell us that all of us are worthwhile, that no matter our issues, no matter our dilemmas, that there is a solution to whatever brings us down. So God, my prayer is that through you we find hope through you we find joy, through you we find resolution, and that through you we find victory. That these paths that are on our road might be paved over by the blood you shed on the cross. God, we give all these things up to you this morning, and it's in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in that name that we do pray these things. Amen. So how does the story end? 1 Samuel 1, 19 through 20. 
They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel. And she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so that's actually what Samuel means. I have asked because I have asked for him. Think about that. She names her child that comes from this great dilemma because I asked the Lord for him. The only reason why I have Samuel is because I asked the Lord for it. I think that's so cool how they would name their kids back in Old Testament that, that they showed what God was doing and what God had done. It's amazing to me because I asked the Lord for him. Okay, Hannah, thanks for that. It's so on the nose. Don't God's most amazing things so seem so simple in hindsight? Like looking back on it, we, we worry and worry and worry and worry. And when we give it over to God, there's this amazing thing that happens. We're like, wow, man, God, you're so good. And this phrase, just when I was doing this sermon, kind of hit me. God makes unthinkable things attainable like they're right there like the most crazy bizarre things we can ever think of the unthinkable complete unthinkable things god puts them in our reach because it's what he does and so we're going to sing one last song but i want to share one last scripture with you today and that's hannah's prayer that comes in chapter two says this my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He rises up the poor from the dust He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. That's us. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the power of his anointed. Amen.